Welcome to Apparently Speaking, the podcast from Northeast Ohio Parent with your host, Miriam Connor. Hi, I'm Miriam, and thank you for listening to Apparently Speaking. On the show today, I get to talk about a topic that I've always thought was really important for kids and adults, for that matter, and unfortunately something I see less and less of, and that is tenacity. Doctors Sam Goldstein and Robert Brooks wrote the book Tenacity in Children, Nurturing the Seven Instincts for Lifetime Success, and they are here to share their expertise. This episode is sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at MazdaKent.com. And also Shell Bell Boutique, featuring today's fashions and accessories for women and girls. Visit ShellBell.com for more information. Check colorful, satisfying meals off your list for the week and use your newfound free time for whatever you want. Think of Keep the Change Kitchen Collective as a virtual food hall. Find better options for each member of your family or each version of yourself all under one roof. What will you do with your reclaimed time? They hope you don't say laundry, but totally understand if you do. Visit ktckitchen.com and use code NODISHES for 20% off your first curbside order. That's K-T-C-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com, code N-O-D-I-S-H-E-S. Sam Goldstein obtained his PhD in school psychology from the University of Utah and is licensed as psychologist and certified school psychologist in the state of Utah. He is also board certified as pediatric neuropsychologist and listed in the Council for the National Register of Health Services Providers in Psychology. He is fellow of the American Psychological Association and the National Academy of Neuropsychology. He is an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry, the University of of Utah School of Medicine. He has authored, co-edited, or co-authored over 50 clinical and trade publications, three dozen chapters, nearly three dozen peer-reviewed scientific articles, and eight psychological and neuropsychological tests. Since 1980, he has served as clinical director of the Neurology, Learning, and Behavior Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Dr. Robert Brooks is a clinical psychologist on the faculty of Harvard Medical School and former director of the Department of Psychology at McLean Hospital, a private psychiatric hospital in the Boston area. Dr. Brooks has authored or co-authored 19 books, 14 with Dr. Sam Goldstein. He has received numerous awards for his work, most recently the Mental Health Humanitarian Award from William James College in Massachusetts for his contributions as a clinician, educator, and author. Dr. Brooks has also served as a consultant to Sesame Street Parents. Welcome, both of you. Thank you so much for coming here. Thanks for having us. Thanks yes, for having us, and sorry to use up so much time with our credentials. <laughs> well, okay, it's okay. I mean, when you've got it, you've got it, right? I mean, you've done a few things, and that's great. <laughs> no, I love it. It's great, and it just gives, I mean, people are going to listen to what you have to say, and that's important. <laughs> um, so it's it's wonderful. You've got a ton of experience and knowledge, and so I'm very honored that you would come on the show. So thank you so much. Um, I love the book. I read the book, Tenacity in Children. I knew when I saw it, it would be something that I wanted to read. And I knew that I would want to try to to talk to you both and get you on here. And I'm fortunate enough that you agreed. So maybe talk a little bit about um, what is tenacity and, you know, why is it even important? Would you like me to start, Bob? 
I always love you to start, <laughs> Sam, to, to give a little background, because we've known each other now, Miriam, for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. So Sam can give a little background how tenacity grew out of our earlier work. So take it away, Sam. Sure. So Bob and I uh, met uh, uh, at, at a conference. We'd, we'd passed each other in conferences, and uh, and I was a big fan of Bob's because he's He's a very moving speaker, and I always learn something new every time I, I listen to him. And we, we, we were talking at, over lunch about our frustration and how focused we were on fixing what was wrong in children and how watching so many children grown up with that model, we appreciated that it wasn't working very well. And we shared this idea of, well, maybe uh, it might be better if we focused on what was right about a child who was struggling uh, and, and tried to find assets because the more liabilities you had, maybe the more important assets become. And that's been demonstrated in the literature. But we started out under this what had been a research uh, area, resilience. In fact, our first book for parents came out 20 years ago, Raising Resilient Children, uh, or over 20 years ago. And and what's interesting was the publisher didn't want us to use that word because they thought it was a, a scientific term and not uh, a, a people term. They thought it was a material science term. And it really has to do with the qualities that enable you to function well over time in the face of adversity. And we, we took the research literature, and I think we were the first to bring it to the general public uh, before anybody knew what the word really meant. And now, if you Google the word resilience, you get millions of hits. And there's even a makeup by Estee Lauder called Resilience. <laughs> and we don't get it. We don't, I don't get a, a dollar. I was going to say, do you get some kind of royalty or something? No, I don't get anything <laughs> for promoting it. Um, and, and we did a series of books. We did, we're, we're just finishing actually our third scientific volume, a third edition of the Handbook of Resilience in Children, where we gather worldwide researchers on this topic. It's fairly unheard of to do a third edition of a scientific textbook like this. And, and I'm very proud to say that, that, that worldwide, there have been hundreds of thousands of downloads of chapters by researchers of this, of this book. So we started with that. And then after a number of years, we realized that knowing what to do was not the same as doing what you know, uh, meaning you can know how to, uh, to, to uh, function in a resilient way, how to problem solve, how to connect to people. But if you don't have the self-discipline or self-control to do it, knowing what to do doesn't automatically translate to doing what you know. And so we then set out on a journey to take the science of self-discipline and how children develop self-regulation and self-control and add that to the component. And, And then finally, a number of years have gone by and we've authored other books together and, and I always felt like what we were missing was the biology, the genetics. Not that biology is destiny, just that it affects probability. Uh, and, and so I convinced Bob that the way to go about doing this was to look at human instincts, not like a bird building a nest or a salmon swimming upstream, but behaviors that young children exhibit before we ever tell them or show them or model for them. Behaviors uh, uh, like empathy or altruism or fairness or optimism um, or uh, motivation or, or thinking a certain way. Uh, and and there's, I, I, I 
helped Bob appreciate that this wasn't just a rehash of resilience or self-discipline, but actually the, the, the third component of what we have come to call uh, the developmental triad or the essential uh, developmental triad of, of childhood, resilience, self-discipline, and tenacity. And for us, tenacity was a term we chose as an umbrella to describe these seven instincts. It, 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 as, a, as a, uh, a definition, as a term, it means the grit or perseverance to stick it out. It's the fuel that keeps you going when things aren't going the way you would hope or you would like. So it, it, it in and of itself, as you point out, Miriam, in the start, uh, suggesting that it's a topic that we don't talk enough about or don't uh, appreciate enough in children. For us, it is the umbrella uh, to describe these uh, seven uh, instincts. And I'll let Bob kind of add to that here. Yeah, just... Uh... Sam gives such a nice uh, background there. When Sam uh, Miriam approached me about the book, as he said, you know, I'm always careful that a new book not be a rehash under a different title of an old book. But why I be started becoming more and more excited about this, and I hope your listeners will as well, is that basically, as Sam talked about these different instincts, I found it very encouraging because what we were finding is, and there's a whole body of research, which are in the, the research is in the book, but I want anyone listening to know, just as in our previous books for parents, we give a lot of examples and dialogue between parents and kids. So it's very well illustrated what you can actually say and do. And what was very encouraging is there's this whole body of research to show that the instant instincts we talked about, which we can get into, like compassionate empathy or optimism, things like that, you don't have to plant the seeds in the child. These seeds are already there from birth, and it is our job as parents and other caregivers to nurture these seeds. Matter of fact, one of our reviewers put it very nicely. He talked about how encouraging the book was because he said, basically, that these instincts suggest that these wonderful qualities that have really evolved over thousands and thousands of years and led to really our survival, these qualities are there. We have research to show that there's the rudimentary signs of compassion and altruism and intrinsic motivation from birth. And the more we understand this, the more then we can help parents think about, well, how do you nurture these seeds so that they will grow and blossom in each child. So I just want to emphasize that part that there's a certain goodness in each of us that we have to find ways of harnessing. Hey, this is Miriam from Apparently Speaking. Join the Mazda family like I did at Montrose Mazda Kent. You'll love the selection of new and used cars and lease options. We are on our third car from Kent Mazda. We keep going back because of the ease of purchase, and it has been by far the best deal we could find each time. Montrose Mazda Kent, they go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at MazdaKent.com. So do you think that, you know, because it seems like, you know, some kids w just are have this, you know, wow, they're like really have that grit, you know, like you talked about where other kids 
no, you know, they just, they're like, nah, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not doing well at it. So forget it. Or, you know, things like that. So do you feel like it's just you're, you're, that's how you are. Or is it because like you mentioned, you know, like you are that way, but you're maybe your parents have done the right thing or the wrong thing, or, or why does it seem like some kids really just are that way? And some kids aren't. Let, let, let me jump in here. Okay. So, and, and lay a little foundation first. Uh, we believe biology is not destiny, but it does affect probability. You know, some kids are stronger in some areas than others. We also appreciate that having the gene doesn't guarantee the expression of the behavior, meaning uh, a child can have all the genes to speak. If they never hear the spoken word, they will never talk. A child can have all the genes to socialize. But if they don't have the opportunity to do it, they'll never know. So genes for complex human behavior, language, problem solving, these instincts that we're describing, they determine the playing field, where you might go in your life. And we're not in the matrix and we're not Stepford Wives and we're not programmed. We're not all exactly the same. And so for some of us, that playing field is shaped one way and for others another way. But the experiences that we have, those that are shaped by the adults in our lives, and here we're focusing on parents, uh, determine where each child ends up on that field of possibilities. And so uh, some children come into the world and very early on demonstrate a, a sense of empathy or altruism or responsibility. And as you point out, Miriam, other children need um, more experiences for those behaviors to manifest. But, but consider a child learning to speak. Some children really struggle. And yet with more modeling and more support, what happens? They learn to speak. So the genes were there all along, but they required a harder push, a, a, a greater experiential push from the environment to display. And as Bob points out, that's why we think this is so wonderful. And yes, some children are more selfish and less altruistic. But every child, if given sufficient opportunity, will demonstrate these behaviors. Some kids just need a harder push, meaning a lot more uh, opportunities for experience. And what we're proposing is that children are not uh, a tabula rasas. They're not blank slates that we have to write upon. And they're not homunculi, which is the Latin for you know a, a preformed, like a rose opening up but they come with this range of genetic possibilities and experience really determines how those possibilities play out. And that's what's so wonderful about this idea. And could I just add to what Sam says, the, uh, the understanding what these instincts are and understanding they may be distributed somewhat differently in different children. There's a wonderful concept years ago in developmental psychology and parenting called goodness of fit. And you see, the more parents can understand the unique characteristics of their child, because some kids may be born actually with a greater predisposition to be empathic, the more parents can understand this, the more than parents can really in one sense, adapt to their child and help their child to develop in those areas that they may not be as strong in, 
and not to see it necessarily as a deficit, but more that different children have these different skills, different instincts. We, we have all of the instincts, but, you know, different predispositions toward these different instincts so that parents, then the goodness of fit is you fit in, you really adapt to your child's characteristics so they can start adapting to real to yours and what the world requires. So I've always loved that notion of goodness of fit, but parents first have to understand what are they fitting with? What are, as Sam and I talk about in this book, what are the different instincts? How can we nurture them? Sure, and, and, and I'll give you an example to build on what Bob just said, Miriam. This morning, I evaluated uh, a 13-year-old a young girl with significant learning disabilities, but also significant anxiety. And anxiety or worry really is reflected in a lack of confidence in predicting what's going to come next. So it makes you uncomfortable. And, and I, I could see she was anxious. And I invited her mother to come in and observe the testing. You know, a neuropsychologist is not interested in labels. I'm interested in processes. And, and she was so relieved. And so there's an example of where uh, uh, perhaps another mental health or professional or evaluator would have said, well, look, you're 13 years old. You can come by yourself, mm-hmm. which would have further heightened this girl's anxiety and, and probably had a, a, a very negative influence on the testing. And that's, I think, what Bob means about goodness of fit. So it's not just fitting with these instincts. It's also fitting with the child's level of emotional development and the child's experiences. A child who is raised in a chaotic environment uh, is going to have a hard time fitting into an environment that suddenly is much more predictable. So you, we're going to talk a little bit about these seven instincts. And I like, I think it's very encouraging, you know, to hear you both say, maybe, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but, you know, maybe there's a parent listening. And as you talk about these, they think, oh yeah, I think my child, you know, because I think as you go through them, I can, I'll be thinking about my own kids and everyone will probably do that. Like, oh yeah, I think they're, they're pretty high on that one, pretty high on that one. Well, maybe this one may, you know, maybe not or need work or whatever it is. But I, I hear you saying that that doesn't mean that's just how it's going to be. You know, you can still, um, raise that level in the, of that instinct. Am I correct on that? Correct. Biology is not destiny. Yeah. It just affects probability. Right. And, and like know, you said, it doesn't mean they're going to be, everybody's different. So right. Some kids are stronger at their certain things, but there are things that we can do um, as parents to foster those instincts and, and make them stronger. Exactly. I don't think uh, Sam and I would have written as many books about resilience and included we'll talk about one of the instincts, optimism. If we ourselves did not have a sense of optimism and hope that in terms of a child's development, even those who have struggled with many challenges, I mean, our our very, uh, all of our books basically have to do with our belief that, I don't want to sound overly simplistic, that things could get better if the adults in a child's life have guideposts and different strategies they can use to help the child's development. And that's why what Sam and I have found in our books for parents is we try to give many examples with the theory, as I mentioned before, many real life examples of what parents can say and do to help the child's development. So let's look at the first one is optimism, correct? 
Optimism. Oh, oh the one of, that we listed. Sure, we yeah. Can, yeah. I was just looking in the, going through the book, you know, the order, but it doesn't matter. Sure. I just want to touch on them. Sure. And, and let me just add that you'll notice that each of these has two words to describe them. Intuitive optimism. Yes. Intrinsic motivation. Partly we did that in an effort to better define the way we conceptually viewed each of these instincts. And to be honest, partly we did that to create our own uh, vocabulary for this. That when you hear intuitive optimism or you read compassionate empathy or you hear Bob talk about genuine altruism, it is uniquely ours. And, and in a world in which one's intellectual property finds its way into a lot of other people's pockets, uh, we feel that's really important. I receive the most compliments on my outfits when I'm wearing something from Shell Bell Boutique. Shop Shell Bell and you're supporting a locally and female-owned business. Shell Bell opened in September of 2020 and they carry many popular brands such as Fate, Vintage Havana, Vegan Warehouse, Can Can, Mono B, Nikki Vicky, and Aloha. The boutique also includes SB Girl, fashions and accessories for girls sizes 6 to 14. Shell Bell is located at 334 East Garfield Road in Aurora, Ohio. If you're not local, you can shop shellbell.com. That's S-C-H-E-L-L-B-E-L-L.com. New styles are arriving daily, and you can check out Shell Bell on Facebook and Instagram and contact the boutique to book your private after-hours sip and shop. That's shellbell.com, 330-954-8400. And I think with optimism, I'm going to ask you a question here. I'll get some free services. Um, so for I'm thinking of, I have three kids. I'm thinking of two of them just um, at, at this moment for this one for intuitive optimism. It's interesting, very interesting to me because, and, and the two that I'm thinking of, they're both optimistic, but one can be a little less, you know, the, the one that I'm thinking of maybe doesn't always jump to, you know, the glasses half full, kind of have to pump this kid up a little more and um, get this one to see them to be a little more optimistic. Where the other one of my kids that I'm thinking of right now is like, oh, it's always, I mean, it's going to be great. Even a horrible situation, it's going to be, it's going to turn out to be great. And it's just interesting because it's like, I know they're different people, but, you know, raised the same way and by the same people. So it's, it's just very interesting um, how they can have those differences. Well, that's where, uh, you know, where we talked about before, Miriam, every child is different at birth. Mm -hmm. And although I, we, we hear all the time in workshops, we give for parents, I raised my kids exactly the same, <laughs> but we really didn't because yeah. they interpret or experience the things we say and do very differently. And we're different parents with different kids. So again, it's understanding your child. And if some kids are not born as optimistic, because we believe optimism isn't in, inborn and we call it intuitive optimism, because if not, if a child took his or her first steps, we've used examples like this, and they fell, isn't it optimistic for the child to feel I can get up again and continue to walk else we'd all be walking on, uh, you know, on all fours uh, if, if we were not optimistic, but some kids who are not optimistic. And I, I know we have to go through all seven, but just say we have to then look at how can we start providing experiences 
where Sam and I talk about they can start tasting success, where they can see that their actions can lead to more successful you know, experiences for them. And that's why we use terms like each child has his or her islands of competence, their strengths. And in our clinical work, we will ask parents, what brings excitement to your child? What is your child passionate about? Because let's start focusing on the strengths of children as well as, you know, what do they need help with? And that's why in our book, actually, Sam and I talk about our journey from a deficit model, looking at what's wrong with kids and how do you fix it, to looking at their beauty and strengths and asking parents even questions about what are your child's strengths? When was the last time you saw your child optimistic? What were, what was he or she involved with? So we get a better sense of the child's overall development. Once, once kids start tasting success in one area, they may be more willing to, to really attempt other areas that have not been, they have not been as hopeful about. So I know I said a lot there and some of it, no, it from some of the other uh, instincts as, as well. But the, the key term, Miriam, Miriam, there is intuitive. Mm-hmm. That is, how does a child know if they keep standing up, they'll walk. If they keep making noises, they'll speak. If they keep scribbling with a pencil, they'll eventually create something that's recognizable. They don't but they intuitively keep going. And that's why we think it's an instinct. And it's, it's very closely tied with intrinsic motivation because you don't have to pay a two-year-old to do anything. They want to help cook and clean and drive the car. And we think it's cute, but it, it really is a demonstration of their motivation from in. You don't have to pay them. And very quickly they learn, well, maybe you'll pay me for something. That's a, a cultural experience. And I'm not against rewards. I'm just pointing out that, for example, all children go off to school intuitively optimistic they'll be successful and intrinsically motivated. They're just happy to do it. Uh, and, and most children do fine. And some children, that that fire of optimism, that uh, inside motivation is is extinguished pretty quickly when they struggle. And one of the things, just to build on what Sam says, Sometimes what we do when kids are starting to get discouraged, we say, we'll give you a reward if you do this work. But then what we're building up is extrinsic motivation rather than helping the child really experience within themselves that there are different things they can do to help them be successful. Because there's research to show, and a lot of it, that once you start rewarding kids, far too often when the rewards are taken away, the kid's interest in that activity, even if they had been interested in the activity before, starts to wane. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the, like a parent that may say, and I think it's, you know, I'm sure it comes from a good place, you know, mm-hmm. the idea, but like, you know, we, uh, you know, I'll give you, you know, X amount if you make this many baskets or if you score a touchdown mm-hmm. or if you do this, you're going to get this. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, it can really backfire. And I'm glad you used the well word. I, I forget the guy. Well-meaning, Sam and I basically start with the assumption parents are well-meaning, and sometimes all of us, including experts like Sam and me, I put experts in quote, we may say or do things that probably do not follow all of what we (laughs) write about, but, you know, our feeling is it's important to understand these uh, instincts, important to understand when does intrinsic motivation and optimism, when even by well-meaning parents, it could start to get thwarted. And we're not going to have the child reach a higher level of optimism and motivation. 
Yeah, very good. And so, right, some of those things, like you said, can backfire um, because they're not intrinsically motivated. They're mm -hmm. doing it to get something. And then, like you said before, if you take that away, if you don't continue to do that every game or every whatever it might be, um, then might be like, ah, oh, this isn't, I don't really care about this that much. And so what are a couple of the other, what are some of the other, um, the other instincts? We talked about optimism, intuitive optimism and intrinsic motivation. We touched on some as well. Well, maybe I could just in a half minute talk about compassion, empathy, because Sam uh, introduced really this notion of simultaneous intelligence, which okay. many parents and teachers have been fascinated with. So we have a term here, uh, one of the instant compassion, empathy. And basically the way we looked at it is empathy is the capacity to, to really try, uh, you know, attempt to put yourself in the shoes of another person and see the world through their eyes on both a cognitive and an affective level. And compassion is tied to it because that's taking that understanding and trying really in one sense to, to really uh, be of help to others, to show, you know, compassion is more as we've defined it and researchers have to really act upon that understanding and enrich the life of someone else. And I'll just mention this and the reader, certainly if they, if they read their book, we give a summary of how infants are already showing the precursors of compassion and empathy. It's just fascinating. So it is there. And the more as parents, we can model it and promote it, uh, the more successful I think we will be both in our childhood and in our adult lives because compassion and empathy, and we put them together, are key qualities in any relationship. And let me turn to Sam because he actually introduced when we were looking at the instincts, this notion of simultaneous intelligence. And I think it has such importance in terms of understanding how we have viewed intelligence in the past and how we are proposing it be viewed here. And, and, but I wonder, Bob, if we should just quickly touch on altruism, responsibility, and fairness so that we cover that one last if we're running short on time okay. and don't well, run out of time for the others. Well, altruism, and then you could take responsibility and fairness. If, you know, altruism, basically, as we talk about, it's really what we say is an unselfish concern for others. It's uh, you want to help others who are in distress. And here also, Miriam, and again, I know we don't have so much time. One of the exciting things when Sam proposed this book and, you know, Sam and I have collaborated on so many things. I hope everyone has an opportunity to have a collaborator like I have in Sam and just tossing around ideas and sharing ideas is I was, again, intrigued by the research to show that... Uh, kids a year old, a little more than a year old, seeing an adult who was having a problem, one sense was picking something up, they will come to help that adult. It, the altruistic feelings are already there. And there's a whole series of research that has been done that we really summarize in the book to show that, again, it's within each child that they do want to be of help. Sam mentioned it before, that if they see an adult who they think can handle it by himself or herself, pick something up, they actually then are not going to run over to help. When they see an adult is having some difficulty, even if they're just a year old, they will already come in to be of assistance to that adult. And there's more research, intriguing research like that, that I know your listeners would be very interested in. And it's as parents, as caregivers, 
how can we cultivate this? So as when these kids become adults, they will be genuinely, as we say, genuine altruism, really wishing to help. And let me tell you, in today's divisive world, things like compassion, empathy, and genuine altruism is so important. And I'll just mention virtuous responsibility. Sam, maybe then you could take measured fairness and compassion uh, and, and, and simultaneous intelligence. <laughs> virtuous responsibility. Again, is it the name? It's, it's, it's really an ethical, what we call an ethical and moral responsibility we have to enhance the lives of, of others. And what it does is it's, all of these you could see are related, but virtuous responsibility also involves taking responsibility and ownership for your behaviors, not blaming others, but being willing to say if something does not go right, you know what, here's the role I play, but I also can play a role in correcting it. Again, we see too often in today's world, many people who things don't go right and they are right away blaming mm -hmm. other people. If only this person had done this, then I wouldn't, you know, have, you know, uh, made a mistake with this. So at an early age, kids are already showing that they're willing to be fair. Again, a whole body, I keep saying this, a whole body of research, wonderful research showing th things about fairness, how it even starts to differ in different cultures, showing parenting and culture is very important. But in all of these, the reasons we look at the research, the reasons we give case examples is for parents to have a sense of here is an important instinct. How can we nurture it? Let's be real. Meal planning is harder than it needs to be. Shopping, prep, and cleanup are always a bigger project in real life than on Pinterest. Keep the Change Kitchen Collective is here to help. They know that time is the most valuable currency for busy parents, and the choice between a pile of dishes and subpar carryout often feels like a lose-lose. Consider Keep the Change, a virtual food hall where you can find better than options for each member of your family or each version of yourself all under one roof. Think roasted chicken dinners with colorful sides, inventive Asian noodles and rice, and crave-worthy chicken tenders and wings. Their nutrient-dense salads and grain bowls are built to last in the fridge, so you can check lunches off your list too. Visit ktckitchen.com to explore their menu and use code NODISHES for 20% off your first curbside order. That's ktckitchen.com code no dishes. I mean, these are so, as you're, as you're talking, you know, the altruism and, and, um, the compassion. And like you said, in today's, in today's society, in today's world right now, we definitely need that. And, and the, the responsibility, I think that's so important because, you know, I think that even as parents, you know, need, we need to be careful if something happens with our child or, you know, not to automatically, you know, we're looking for someone to blame. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we've seen that it's the other kid's fault. It's the teacher's fault. It's this or that. And that may be in some cases, but um, you know, and I think it's, it's important to tell your kids too, you know, like, you know, I will tell my kids, no, like if they tell me about a situation, maybe with a friend or something, of course, like inside right away, you know, my heart is like, Oh no, you know, that's, my poor babies, you know, but, but I, I have to stop. And then I, I will tell them, you know, you know, but I think that, 
your part or what was your part in this? Or I think that maybe there's a different way you could have handled it, even if they don't want to hear that at the time, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that. And I think that um, that's something that we have to be careful about as parents, because, you know, our heart to me, you know, right away, it's like, no, never. Or how could you do that? You know, but, but really to make them better people, we have to step back and, and look at it objectively. Definitely. And now, Sam, why don't you take measured fairness and simultaneous intelligence? Sure. Let me do fairness just quickly. Why is fairness so important? Everybody's worried about fairness. And and for most of us, it's fair if we have an advantage and it's not fair if someone else <laughs> has the advantage. And, and I think because for hundreds of thousands of years, you know, human species, not just Homo sapiens, but Homo erectus, two and a half million years on this planet. <clears throat> and, and again, your listeners need to keep in mind that for 99.9% of that period, there were no schools, no rules, no governments, no, uh, no organized society. And the way children became adults was by the care of their parents. And their parents were not necessarily educated about how to raise children. They too operated on these instincts. We We've somehow turned our back on it because we think we're smarter than that and we can kind of mold and shape the human brain into whatever we think it should be as opposed to whatever it is. But fairness is a big deal. And I think up until maybe a few thousand years ago, uh, everybody did everything. And then came the age of specialization. You could do something others couldn't do. So you were compensated more because of your ability to play a game or or make a moccasin, or whatever, the, or, or hunt, or whatever the case may be. And you can see the extent of how specialization is reinforced in our society, such that uh, people who are really responsible for uh, bringing the next generation into the future, educators, are compensated far less than people who entertain us. Uh, and, and when you think about it, it doesn't make any sense at all, because those entertainers, while they fill our free time, really don't in any way add to or enhance the future of our species the way uh, you do as an educator, Miriam, or other educators do. So we point out that fairness, uh, when given the opportunity to be reinforced, comes out. And that children, if you know game theory, children will operate in a fair way when given the opportunity. It's, it's fascinating research that, again, as Bob points out, we make palatable uh, for for the reader, so you understand in each chapter uh, what's the research that we build the foundation for why we're telling you to do what we suggest you do uh, for, for reinforcing each of these, regardless of a child's uh, age, whether we're talking about a younger child or latency or a teenager. So that's just a little bit about fairness. And yes, some children have a harder time with it, but it's interesting that most kids will, uh, will act in a fair way. There's a wonderful commercial for uh, Hershey's chocolate bars where you see two kids uh, take a take a piece of chocolate if you're this, take a piece of chocolate if you're that. And there's a question about the last question, I think, is about fairness. And the two kids share the you know, there's one piece left and the one kid picks it up and then hands it to the other kid. Um, you know, I've seen and, that. That's a yeah, great and it's, yeah. it really taps into that. So let me tell you briefly about. Uh, this idea of simultaneous intelligence. And, and the term simultaneous is from a Russian neuropsychologist, Luria, who wrote about this kind of thinking. Uh, and intelligence, uh, for thousands of years, 
Intelligence was defined as how well you solved a problem, not how well you could read or perform mathematics. And uh, uh, the well-meant efforts of our schools to create gifted education with limited financial resources leads them to not just measure a child's ability to think and problem solve, but also their reading and math and writing and spelling. And I have children that I've worked with that are gifted intellectually, but just average readers. Hmm. And uh, lo and behold, they can't get into the gifted program. So for thousands of years, intelligence was defined as how well you solved a problem, not how well you could uh, acquire knowledge. And, and, and you have to understand the first intelligence tests were based on testing children who were reported to be doing well in school. And doing well in school was defined as how much you knew, not how well you could solve a problem. So let me explain why I don't use the word intelligence without simultaneous any longer. Simultaneous means seeing all the pieces at the same time. Because again, by the school's current definition of gifted, there were no intelligent people before the year 1800. Because no one could read. And hardly anyone went to school. So obviously there's something wrong with that definition of intelligence. Simultaneous is just as it sounds. Understanding and appreciating all the facts, all the pieces of information you have to solve a problem. Uh, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> if I say 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, you only need to know 10 to predict 12. It's a predictable sequence. I'll put you on the spot here, Miriam. Uh, oh, if no, I, say, not, I hope it's not math. It's math, <laughs> if I, but it's patterns. If I say, my calculator here. Uh, all right, one, <laughs> three, six, 10, 15. What number comes next? One, um, three, 21. right, right. All right. right. Miriam, you're brilliant. <laughs> but, to solve right. that, but to solve that problem, Miriam, you had to simultaneously consider every number's relationship to every other number. If I pulled a number out of the pattern, you couldn't figure it out. If I give you 10 facts about an animal and you randomly pick three, you might choose an animal that matches the three, doesn't match the remaining seven. Good simultaneous thinkers, which the synonym is good critical thinking, uh, a good uh, intelligence as it were, leave no piece of information unconsidered. And I'll add that creativity involves taking a piece of information from outside of the box that other people haven't considered and putting it in the box with all the other facts everyone else has and coming up with something new or novel. So creativity is very different. But here we're talking about using all the pieces of information that you have at your disposal. That's what critical thinking is about. And believe it or not, when you teach kids how to do this, so critical thinking is not about how much you know. That's dependent on opportunity. That's dependent on experience. Critical thinking is dependent on using the information in, in a way that solves a problem without anyone telling you how to do it. Uh, and lo and behold, when you teach kids how to think this way, you don't teach them exactly what to do. You teach them how to think this way. Their grades go up. Hmm. Their overall functioning goes up. We, we are standing at a wonderfully exciting threshold in which we're redefining what intelligence and, and problem solving and just functioning well in the world based on how you think is all about. And you hear educators now talk about executive functioning or critical thinking or social emotional learning. 
Well, the foundation for all of these is simultaneous intelligence. And in the book, we, we talk about the research so parents can understand, and we give some examples and some resources. Again, it's, it's, a, it, it's not meant to be an encyclopedia. We give you ideas and resources of where to go. Our belief, Bob and I, is that once we point a parent in a direction, most parents are sufficiently motivated. I have a saying, most parents are good enough for most children. Mm -hmm. uh, most parents are sufficiently motivated and they go and find the resources. It's important to understand why we suggest certain things before I tell you what to do. And unfortunately, and I'll stop here, but unfortunately, parents have been reinforced to believe that they have to be told how to paint by numbers. Here's, here's what to do. You do this, you do this, you do that. Yeah. And, and you get low compliance because people don't understand why, whether it's in medicine or dentistry or your kid's education. People don't comply if they don't have an appreciation and an understanding of the why. And I think more than anything else, I'll let Bob add, more than anything else, what we have done in our books, particularly this book, which I'm very proud of, is we help you understand why you should think the way we're suggesting, why you should appreciate these seven instincts, and why you should look out for three other instincts we call the unholy trinity that may have enhanced our survival, but today in, in our society can cause kids lots of problems. Well, I think, Sam, you have summarized it uh, so effectively. And Miriam, you could see just how they overlap and mm -hmm. simultaneous intelligence and problem solving also are so implicated in being optimistic. You're going to be more optimistic if you feel you have the capacity to solve problems. You're going to be more motivated to engage in challenging tasks if you feel you have the capacity to solve problems. So all of these instincts we say overlap greatly they really nurture each other and uh, for us as these instincts which are there from birth as they develop as we help to nurture them they're going to lead and that's in uh, the title in the book nurture you know the instincts for lifetime success and as sam said we try to really give these guideposts we give some examples so parents will have a sense of how we use these instincts or other families have used them. And then it's up to the family also to know their child and to know uh, each child and how best to nurture that, the, those instincts in each child. It is a great book and it's an easy read. It's not like, you know what I mean? Oh my gosh, this is, you know, written just, it's, you guys are so smart and so accomplished, but it's, Anybody can sit down and, and read this book, you, you know, easily. And you have a lot of, you do have stories and, and um, examples and so much research and it's such an important topic. And I love that you broke it down into these seven instincts and they're both, they're all just so interesting. I mean, we only were able to just, you know, do a little snippet of each, which we knew that was going to be the case. So I hope that um, everyone will get the book. Um, because it is, it is a great book. It's a great, um, it's a great book for every parent. And I'm thinking like parents and teachers, even, you know, as, as we're I'm thinking about this book, who it would be good for. Um, so I, I'm assuming the book is available anywhere, right? Yes. Yes. And there is a everywhere. They just go on Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and other place, of course, uh, right. usually go to Amazon. That's where yeah, yeah. <laughs> if parents and if parents 
want to read a little bit more about these instincts and about the book, there is a website just for the book, tenacityinchildren.com. Okay. And then I was going to, and I will put all that in the show notes as well. Um, And then how can readers, you know, find each of you, listeners find you um, because you have a lot of other books, you know, as we mentioned, and a lot of other great information out there also. Well, I'll tell you what's interesting, Miriam. Bob and I are uh, so old. No. We were on, well, I'm 69 and Bob, you're older than me. Right. And, uh, <laughs> That's not old. Well, no. Thank yeah, you, Miriam. We love you already. I, I guess that's not old, but I'll tell you, we were on, the reason I say it is we were on the web before there was a web. Right. <laughs> and so we don't pay for placement. If you Google, you know, Robert Brooks, if you Google Sam Goldstein, uh, all the first citations that come up, uh, if you Google Bob Brooks, um, all the citations that come up are us. Nice. Uh, because we've been doing it for so long. But we both have a website. Mine is just samgoldstein.com. Yours is what? Dr. Dr. Robert Brooks.com. Yeah, he had to put the doctor in front of his name because his mother made him do that. <laughs> well, I put the doctor in front of my name because there was a football player, Robert Brooks, who beat me to the website. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, Sorry. Uh, and we both have just lots of resources. Neither one of us will capture your name and, and try and sell you anything. Uh, we both send out um, newsletters. Bob is pretty religious in sending his out, uh, not in the summer, but once a month during the year. Mine go out because I'm so busy in the clinic. Uh, sometimes I miss a month. Uh, you can sign up and receive them uh, for free. Great. And we'll add all that um, in the show notes as well. I thank you both so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to have you. I wish we lived close. I would be um, insisting that you come out to lunch with me and um, chat with me. <laughs> where, where are you, Miriam? Where do you live? Ohio. So you lucked out, right? You- outside, outside Cleveland, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Oh, in Columbus. I have a dear friend. No, Cleveland. <laughs> oh, Cleveland. Okay. There's a rivalry between those two cities. Yeah, right. Not outside Cincinnati. I thought you said outside. No, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you so you. much for being here. This episode is sponsored by Montrose Mazda Kent. They go around the world for you. Before you look, call or stop in and talk to Jeremy. Find out more at MazdaKent.com. And also Shell Bell Boutique, featuring today's fashions and accessories for women and girls. Visit shellbell.com for more information. Check colorful, satisfying meals off your list for the week and use your newfound free time for whatever you want. Think of Keep the Change Kitchen Collective as a virtual food hall. Find better options for each member of your family or each version of yourself all under one roof. What will you do with your reclaimed time? They hope you don't say laundry, but totally understand if you do. Visit ktckitchen.com and use code NODISHES for 20% off your first curbside order. That's K-T-C-K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com, code N-O-D-I-S-H-E-S. Thank you for listening to Apparently Speaking. Listen and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, and iHeartRadio. Find the podcast and much more at northeastohioparent.com, like Apparently Speaking on Facebook, and email me at podcast at northeastohioparent.com.